Well, good morning. Good morning. You can tell we're at week five because the numbers are starting to dwindle a little bit. Um, I don't know if guys are on vacation or just taking a vacation from Bible study, but I'm glad to be back. Um, I'm back from uh, um, Boston. Um, really glad to be back from Boston. Uh, got my, my son graduated from Harvard, and that, that was, it was a surreal experience um, to watch your kid walk across the stage, the kid who flunked out OU and who gave you nothing but grief all through high school, suddenly has a diploma from that school. Um, but uh, if, if, if you don't know this, uh, Harvard is extremely liberal. Um, man, it, was, uh, it definitely was surreal. Um, but glad to be back, glad to be here to t- teach this lesson today, and we're going to uh, pick up on a character that you're going to probably wonder, why in the world did you choose this guy? I had a guy come up to me on Sunday, and he says, so who's next, Goliath? Um, you know, we've done a lot, now we're going to do Nebuchadnezzar, and he's like, why, why are we studying these guys? Well, there's a method to my madness, and um, Nebuchadnezzar is um, a fascinating character, And the reason I've chosen him is because, for me, he represents um, an important aspect of humanity that we need to look at. And and it's because God, on at least five occasions in Scripture, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, refers to him as his servant. And so in preparing these lessons, you know, we've looked at Abraham, the friend of God. Uh, We've looked at David, a man after God's own heart. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God. Now, what jumps out at me is that you can be a servant of God and you can be used of God and not be a man of God. And that's pretty significant for us to consider as believers, as Christians, that I can be used of God, I can be a servant of God, and not necessarily be walking with God. Because that's exactly what we're going to see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, that this guy was used by God, was a servant of God, accomplished the will of God, and even praised God, but he was anything but a man of God. And we need to look at him to see, can we do that? Are we guilty of the same thing at times? So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of studying it together as men, and I'm grateful to be back here among brothers in Christ, and may you guide us today as we look at the life of this historical character, a man that you used uh, to accomplish your will. And may we see the things that we need to see about his life so that we can avoid them in our lives, that, Father, we don't want to emulate him. We don't want to be like him. We do want to be used by you, but we want to be used in the right way. We want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to be the true kind of servants, men of God, who are instruments in the hands of God to accomplish your will. So guide us, direct us, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So part of what we're going to look at at today is is historical. Uh, This is a a, a real character. Um, I've listened to a a number of podcasts this last week on Nebuchadnezzar, uh, written by non-believers or produced by non-believers, that he was a real character. We have documentation. Nebuchadnezzar did exist. He's not uh, a fabric of somebody's imagination. So it's going to be part historical. It's going to definitely be theological, okay? We're going to see theological truths, but I I also think it's going to be highly practical. Now, 
the, the main thing we're going to walk away with is pride. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man. Now, we've already touched on pride when we looked at some of the other characters, but we're going to see it kind of in spades with this guy, that he is the epitome of pride, kind of the poster boy of pride. But there's going to be other things that are going to jump out in his, his life. You know, we looked at um, Lot was a friend of the world. Abraham was a friend of God. David was a man after God's own heart. And what I think about Nebuchadnezzar is he's a man after his own heart. And in a way, Nebuchadnezzar is a man after our heart. Um, whether you like it or not, whether you would admit it or not, you are probably a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than you would like to be. And, and in many ways, we do emulate his life without even knowing it or thinking about it. So who was he? Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. I don't think that's news to anybody in the room. He was powerful. He was influential. He, he was the king of the greatest nation on earth at the time. Uh, he had conquered the Egyptians. He had con conquered the Assyrians. He, he uh, inherited his kingship from his, his father, and he became this conqueror of the nations. As a matter of fact, the reason he's called a servant of God by Jeremiah and Isaiah is that he was used by God to destroy Judah. God used him, this pagan king, to destroy the people of Judah for their rebellion against God, for their idolatry, for their unfaithfulness. So he's a tool in the hands of God. God used him. And just like God uses a lot of people, God uses believers, God uses unbelievers. He uses pagans, he uses the faithful. And this guy was used by God to accomplish his will in the lives of his chosen people, which is pretty amazing. And again, we see that over and over again in the scriptures. He's a Gentile. Uh, he's an unbeliever. He does not believe in God. He worships other gods. As a matter of fact, um, the primary god the Babylonians worshiped was a god named Marduk. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, we know a lot about Babylon because of the city of Babylon. You've probably heard of the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which they're not even sure ever really existed. But Babylon was a, f a fantastic place. It was an incredible city. And most of it was built by this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And he built it as a tribute to Marduk, who is their god, the Babylon Babylonian god of creation. And in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, when he built Babylon, it was a recreation of the world. He was building a new universe, and everything would revolve around what? Babylon. So you can see where this guy had a pretty big pride problem. He had a massive ego. And he's kind of the poster boy for everything that's decadent, immoral, ungodly, because he's the king of Babylon. And Babylon is used all throughout the scriptures and all the way into the book of Revelation to epitomize ungodliness, immorality, unrighteousness. It, it's going to show up in the book of Revelation, and it's referred to constantly as Babylon. Babylon, the great city, the city that raises up its head against God Almighty. And it's also true here. So why are we studying him? Why look at a guy who was the king of an ungodly city, who himself was an ungodly king, well, I can't help but think about what Paul warns us about. Over and over again, he says, such were some of you. And what he means is, there was a time in my life and in your life that we too were ungodly and pagan 
and immoral and unrighteous, and we were redeemed. Something happened. So he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What sets Nebuchadnezzar apart from a guy like Abraham is what? One had faith in Yahweh, the other one didn't. Both were pagans. Um, we've, we've looked at Abraham. Abraham was a man living in Ur of the Chaldees, not far from Babylon. He was a Mesopotamian. He was a Chaldean. He was a worshiper of Marduk, just like Nebuchadnezzar, and yet God redeemed him, called him, and made him his own. That's not true of Nebuchadnezzar. That's, that didn't happen in his life, and yet we were like him in so many ways. And we suffer sometimes from the same problem that he had, pride. Now, we've, we've looked at this definition before, but pride is believing that I have achieved what God has done through me or others have done for me, seeking the praise of men and taking credit for the achievements of others. We see this over and over again in his life, Nebuchadnezzar, that he took credit for everything. Now, even when he becomes aware of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and he realizes that this God is pretty powerful, he still tends to take credit for everything. He still thinks it all revolves around me. And I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you because you're a lot like me. I take credit for way too many things in my life. If anything goes south, I blame somebody else. If it goes great, I did it. And, and where do I get that from? I get it from this same problem that he had, pride. I want to take credit for the good. I want to blame others for the bad. If I can't find anything, I blame my wife. Where'd you put it? I didn't touch it. Well, you put it somewhere because it was over here. And inevitably, I misplaced it. But I want to blame everybody for my faults, and I want to take credit for all my, quote, successes. That's the problem this guy had. He was just rife with pride. And pride is the core of all sin. It is, it is the root of all sin. It all begins with pride. What I want to do, my will over God's will, um, my desires over his desires, it's what caused the fall to begin with, right? All, all the enemy did is he, he went before Eve and said, you want to eat that, don't you? Now, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you want to eat that? And she goes, well, you know, we, we can't. He goes, well, you, you really can because the only reason he's denied it is because if you eat it, you'll be like God. And so she eats of it. What drove that? Pride, the desire to be like God, the, the desire to run my own life, be the master of my own fate. And so pride is at the core of all sin. And he, here's what you got to understand. Pride and godliness cannot coexist in the life of a believer. I'm not telling you if pride wells up in your life, sometime today, you're suddenly not a believer. That's not what I'm saying, but you cannot be godly and prideful at the same time. One takes precedence. If you're going to live in pride, you cannot be a man of God. You may be saved. You may be a Christian. You may have your eternity set and guaranteed, but you are not living in a godly way if you're living in pride. They can't coexist. Proverbs 8.13, all who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. We have to hate pride. Now, it's not enough to hate pride in somebody else. You know, 
And, and we're great at seeing in somebody else's life, man, that's the most prideful, arrogant guy I've ever met in my life. But do you see it in you? Like when you look in the mirror, do you go, man, that's the most prideful, arrogant man I've ever seen in my life. Do you hate pride in you as much as you hate it in others? How, how about this? What does God say about pride? I can sit here and berate you about pride and you shouldn't have pride in your life and, and then turn around and be prideful myself. But what does God say about pride? What is his concept of pride? Well, first of all, it's of this world. It doesn't come from him. Pride does not emanate from God. And you don't see pride in God. God does not exhibit pride. He, he's not prideful. So what is it? It's, it's important to understand this because sometimes I think we have a faulty definition of an understanding of pride. Here's what it says. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Where does pride come from? The world. That's what the Apostle John is telling us. These are not from the Father. These kinds of things don't come from God. Pride in my achievements, pride in my possessions, God did not give us stuff so that we'd, we would become prideful of it. Look at what I have and compare with one another. Isn't it interesting that he, he's given so many warnings about and so many commands about lust and envy and jealousy because they attach themselves to this thing of pride. And, and you know, I, I've seen in my own life in the past where when I've been able to like buy a new car and typically I buy used cars, but to me, they're new cars, right? I buy that car and I'm proud of that car and I'm driving it down the road and I'm thinking, man, this is great. I've got a new car. I got rid of that clunker. And then I see somebody with a newer car and suddenly my pride diminishes and envy takes place. Well, God, why didn't I buy that car? Because you can't afford that car. And I suddenly don't love the car I thought I just loved. See, all of this is wrapped up together and it's so dangerous in the life of a believer because we're basically saying, God, you don't take care of me. I gotta take care of me. I gotta buy the stuff that I wanna buy because you don't provide it to me. You're not good enough. You're not gracious enough. And so pride and envy and jealousy all mix in together and God hates pride in his people. Not only does he hate it, but he opposes the prideful. He stands opposed to you when you're living in pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We've looked at this passage before. What's important about this passage is what it doesn't say, but is inferred. He gives grace to who? The humble, which means he doesn't give grace to who? The prideful. So anytime I've got pride welling up in my life, what am I missing or missing out on God's grace? And God's grace is the power to live the life he's called me to live. So when pride wells up, guess what I don't get? The grace of God, the power to live godly. That's why the two can't coexist. If I want to be prideful, have at it. Have a great day. But you will not live godly as long as you are prideful. It's impossible. And that's why God stands opposed to it because he knows the danger it places on the life of a believer. When you live in pride, God looks at you as wicked. That's pretty, pretty strong language, right? God looks down and he sees Ken Miller saved, my name written on the Lamb's Book of Life. I've got a place reserved for me in heaven. But when I am living in pride, he views me as 
wicked, living in wickedness. Now, I'm still righteous because of the blood of Christ. I'm still redeemed. I'm still going to be saved. But at that moment, I'm living in wickedness. Look at Proverbs 16:5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Again, really strong language. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. You are an abomination. What does that word abomination mean? In the Hebrew, it's toiba. It's a, it's a pretty powerful word. It means you're morally disgusting and ethnic, eth, ethically, excuse me, abominable. You, you are nauseating to God. It's, it's, it's like the passage that says, I'd rather you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you make me want to puke. That's my paraphrase. When we live this way, we are an abomination. We are, we are morally disgusting to God because it's not how he redeemed us to live. We're living in a way that is not according to his will for us. And so we need to understand the seriousness of, of, of it. It's, it's abhorrent. It, it means we are at that moment living in an unclean, impure way before God. Now, again, it doesn't change my salvation, it just doesn't change my destiny, but why would I want to live that way in the eyes of God, in a prideful, arrogant way? See, he despises it. And, and this is something I don't think about enough, that God despises pride in his people. Why? Because he knows the damage it does, not only to them, but to those around them and to his name. When we live in pride, we defame the name of God because we make it all about us. This is what the Lord says. This shows how I will rot away the pride of Judah and Jerusalem. I want you to listen carefully to what we're going to look at because this gives you another idea of just how much God hates pride. These wicked people refuse to listen to me. They stubbornly follow their own desires and worship other gods. Therefore, they will become like this loincloth, good for nothing. Now, we can read that and go, well, that sounds pretty serious, but I'm not sure what it means. Well, it it gets worse because this this loincloth that it's referring to is really an undergarment. It's like underwear, okay? He says, you become like this loincloth. Well, what loincloth? What loincloth is he talking about that's good for nothing? Well, we got to go back and look at Jeremiah. He's referring to Jeremiah's own personal underwear, Okay? Now, this is pretty, pretty significant that God is using this visual demonstration for Jeremiah, the prophet of God, in order to illustrate just how gross the sins are of his people. Here's what happens. He tells them, go buy a linen loincloth and put it on and don't wash it. Now, when my sons were younger, this was a problem because they would wear the same underwear five days in a row unless we made them change. Now, you don't need to use your imagination to understand why that's gross. Imagine being the prophet of God, and he says, buy a loincloth, put it on, wear it repeatedly, and never wash it. Jeremiah had to do some really strange things, this being one of them. Then he says, take the linen loincloth you're wearing and go to the Euphrates River, not to wash it, but hide it there in a hole in the rocks. So he's going to take this soiled underwear and he's going to go hide it in a rock near the river Euphrates. Then he says, a long time afterward, the Lord said to me, go back to the Euphrates and get the loincloth I told you to hide there. 
Some length of time goes by, he's sent back to that area to go get the loincloth, and it's rotting and falling apart, and it's good for nothing. So here's Jeremiah, the prophet of God. In order for him to understand just how wicked the people of God are, he's got this really gross visual demonstration he's holding in his hands. His soiled loincloth that has been placed in a rock by the river where it's rotted and it's totally useless. And that's how God describes the people of Israel. It's a pretty powerful image, right? What's this got to do with Jeremiah or with Nebuchadnezzar? Everything. Because this guy really had a pride problem. And he exhibited pride in a way that we need to understand so that we don't allow it to creep into our lives. See, he was used to getting his own way. He was demanding. If you study his life in the scriptures, you see that this guy was ruler over everything, literally the ruler over everything. He had incredible power. Whatever he said was done. He fostered fear in everyone around him because he's the king, because he's the great Nebuchadnezzar, because he can put you to death. They feared him, but nobody respected him, and he demanded it everywhere he went. He overreacted constantly, and we have story after story that describe this king with all this power and all this pride who overreacted. He got angry repeatedly. He was a man that you didn't want to wrong because he had the power and authority to take your life. He could do with you what he wanted, and he was always worried about the future always worried about what was going to come next. Can you imagine being the king of the most powerful nation in the world and the one thing you would always be worried about is, when's it going to end? Who's going to take it from me? Who's going to kill me? I can't trust anybody in my retinue. That They're all conspiring against me. It's just like every dictator in the world today. They all fear somebody trying to take them down. And that's how this guy lived. Obsessed with power, possession, his position, didn't want to lose it, didn't want somebody to take it from him, and he was always taking credit for his own success. Now, let's look at this, but at the same time, think about ourselves. Does this happen in your life and in my life? Well, sure it does. Maybe not to the same degree. I don't have the power this guy had, but I certainly do take credit for my success. I do worry about the future. I do get concerned about being replaced or not being important, just like he did. And I want to be admired. I want to be emulated. And I want to emulate those who I aspire to be like. That's what he did. He looked at other kings. He looked at the Pharaoh. He looked at the king of Assyria, who he later conquered. And he wanted to be like them. He wanted to be greater than them. And that's what built his pride. And it created an overinflated sense of self-worth. Look at me. Look at how important I am. Look at how great I am. And he developed a really incredible God complex. He became as God in his own mind. How? Why? Because he was the self-made man. He made himself. Yes, he inherited his kingdom from his dad, but he took Babylon far beyond anything his dad ever dreamed. And he began to build a kingdom, really a world, all revolving around him. And he got everything that comes with that. He had a position that anybody would die for. They, everybody wanted to be Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody had him on the, the totem pole, and they wanted to reach up and be like him. 
He had unparalleled power and authority. Anything he said happened. If he wanted to go to war, all he had to do is snap his fingers and they went to war. If he wanted anything, he had it handed to him on a silver platter, literally. He could have anything. Imagine that. Imagine that kind of power. Possessions and pleasures beyond belief. You know, they they have basically the site plan, the foundation of his palace. We don't know what it looked like vertically, but we know horizontally it was huge and it was massive and it was incredible. The whole city was. And, and so that was his domain. That was his world. He had everything. And he had all these plans to conquer the known world. And he was living the dream. He was accomplishing it all. And he had all the resources to do whatever he wanted to do. You know, I, I know if you're like me, you've, you've probably had that dream of, what if I won the lottery? You know, and, and the first thing you always tell yourself, I'd tithe. Lord, if you'd let me win the lottery, I'd tithe. And, and I'm here to tell you, no, you wouldn't. You know, you may give a little, but you would become obsessed with that wealth. And it would control you, and it would be a god to you. And you would fear losing it. And the sad thing is most people who win the lottery do lose it. They misspend it. They get defrauded. This guy had it all, and it developed this God complex to where he's the greatest thing on earth. He's the most important person on earth, but yet he has no peace. And we get this as we read through his life that this man who had it all never was satisfied. And we've all, I think, learned that to a degree where it doesn't matter how much we get. We spend it. It's never enough. You know, I I spent every bonus I ever got before I ever received it. You know, I was in advertising. I I always knew at the end of the year I'd probably get a bonus. And so I I would start planning how I was going to spend it. And I was always going to spend it on me. The problem was my wife also knew that we were going to get a bonus. And so she decided what she was going to spend it on. And it was always something for the house. And what typically happened is she went out and bought something for the house. I went out and bought something for me before the thing ever came in. When it did come in, it was less than I expected, and we had spent more than I got. It happened religiously, regularly, because you can never have enough, and it produces this lack of peace. He worried all the time, as you can imagine. Don't want to lose my wealth. Don't want to lose my power, my position. He had recurring nightmares, and we're going to look at them in just a second. He felt constantly threatened from his enemies, both outside and within. He he feared everything, and it created insecurity. And that's why wealthy people can have a lot of stuff, but they are insecure. They, They are always fearing losing what they have, losing their power, losing their possessions, losing their prominence, and they can't trust anybody. This is how this guy lived. And I think he's, he's a picture of what we should avoid as believers, that we don't want to live like Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to make stuff the God of my life. Otherwise, I'm going to live just like this. I'm going to have all this wonderful stuff, but I have no relationship with God. What happened to Adam and Eve? They got exactly what they wanted. They ate of the fruit. They gained the knowledge of good and evil, and they lost their relationship with God Almighty and they were cast from his presence. So here's this guy, obsessed with his power. He's a monument to his own glory, and now he's going to literally build a monument to his own glory. And this is one of the many stories we have of him. 
It says that King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He builds a statue. Now, what, what's important to understand is where he got the idea from this. It's this massive 90-foot statue. Now, there are many who believe it, he made it to look like himself. That the scriptures don't say that. It's likely that he did because he's not going to make it look like somebody else, right? So if you're going to make a statue, you're going to probably make it look like you. And so he makes one that's 90 feet tall. Where do you get the idea? From a dream. And Daniel is the one who interprets the dream. Now, Daniel is a Hebrew. He's living in Babylon. He's working for the king. He's one of the individuals who got sent to Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah. And he's there as a young man. He becomes employed by Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets dreams for this guy. I find this fascinating that he gets the idea from a dream. Where did the dream come from? God. Here's what Daniel tells him. Your majesty, you're the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty. Now, this is important. Who put him on the throne? God. Who made him successful? God. He's not a God worshiper. He doesn't believe in Yahweh. And yet Daniel's saying, the God of heaven, my God, Yahweh, has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. The statue was made of different kinds of materials. And we know from elsewhere in the passage that it represents kingdoms, but he is the preeminent kingdom. He's the gold head. What's interesting in this passage is all the references to creation. It's like... God has made you, and he has made you ruler over everything. It's, it's reminiscent of what? Adam and Eve. He made them. He put them in his garden and says, you are to have dominion over all the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals that roam the earth. And that's exactly what he says to this guy. God is taking this pagan king and putting him in a place of authority. He says, you're the head of gold. Well, you can only imagine that all goes to where his head. He's sitting there going, wow, your God has just confirmed what I already believed. I'm this great, powerful, wonderful guy, and I'm going to build this statue. Daniel goes on and says, the great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. You are that golden head. You are the greatest of all kings over the greatest of all the nations. And this certainly went to his head because Daniel's saying, this is going to happen. It's going to be true. You're great now, but you're only going to be, be greater. And then listen to what the king says. Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. He goes, your, your God, Daniel, is a great God. Now, this almost sounds like he's becoming a Yahweh believer, but he's not a Yahweh believer. He's just saying, I don't know who your God is, but I like him because what he said. What if he had said, you're going to be the feet of clay? He wouldn't have said this, I don't think. And he'd go, nah, what kind of God is that? No, 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 no. I don't, want, I don't be the feet of clay. I want to be the head of gold. It's because this God said good things about him that he praises this God. And then he builds the statue. I think it's fascinating that he, he says all these wonderful things about Daniel's God, 
but does he build this statue to honor Daniel's God? No, he builds a statue to honor Nebuchadnezzar, him. So he builds it, and then he orders that it be worshipped. Now, we're gonna, not going to get into the story, but we know what's going to happen because of the three buddies of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebedwego. Uh, those three guys are going to end up refusing to worship this idol. But here's what he says. People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. This is Nebuchadnezzar giving an edict to his people. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. What's he doing? He's not saying worship Yahweh, right? He's saying worship my statue. And this is why most scholars believe it looked like him. It was an effigy of him. Worship and bow down before me because I am the head of gold. I am the greatest king that ever lived. Bow down and worship me. And what we know is that anyone who refuses to do so will be put to death. You'll be killed. That's a pretty serious edict, right? You have to worship this 90-foot statue that probably resembled King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet we know that those three friends of Daniel's refused to. They said, we'd rather die. We'd rather die than worship anyone other than Yahweh. They remained faithful. They didn't compromise. They didn't give in to the king's edict. They didn't fear man. They feared God and obeyed God, and they were thrown in the furnace, and then God delivered them. See, what you had there is the, the difference between here's a guy who got a dream from God, was told great things by God. He said good things about God, but he builds an idol to himself. Whereas these men believed in God, they put their faith in God and were willing, willing to die for God, being faithful to God. What a juxtaposition between the two. Servant of God, men of God. Huge difference. And that's why I think he's covered in the scriptures so greatly. But he does praise God. This is what's fascinating about Nebuchadnezzar. He sends this message to all the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. He's basically saying throughout his whole kingdom, which spread all over the known world at that time, he gives this message, peace, prosperity to you. Then he goes on, I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God, the God of Israel, has performed for me. Now, notice how he always turns it on him. It's always about Nebuchadnezzar. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. His rule through all generations. Now, this sounds like a pretty solid testimony, but what's it based on? What he's gotten out of it. As long as he's the head of gold, he'll praise this God. But if this God says something else, he's not going to be quite so happy. So he has a second dream. Remember, the first dream led to him building the statue. The second dream he has, which I think is tied to his insecurities, he sees a tree, and it's a great, large, fruitful tree that spreads over everything. But the problem is, in the dream, somebody chops down the tree. The tree ends up being a stump. And that's not good news, right? He's smart enough to know that that doesn't sound like head of gold stuff. This sounds like I'm being eliminated. And so it disturbs him. 
And once again, Daniel comes in and Daniel gives him the interpretation. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. Now that's great up until the point that it gets chopped down, right? And this is the part he doesn't like. I like the head of gold. He builds a statue. He hears about this tree. It's huge, it's green, it's lush. Everybody benefits from it. And this part of the dream is okay, but there's a second part to the dream. Daniel says, you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. This is where Nebuchadnezzar begins to have questions about this God. I'm not sure I like this God anymore. I don't like what this God has to say about me. I don't like the outcome of this dream, but it gets worse. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. What's going on? God is dealing with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He's got a pride problem. And he's got a second message to this guy. Even though Nebuchadnezzar had said wonderful things about Yahweh, God knew Nebuchadnezzar's true heart. Nebuchadnezzar was in love with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was in love with anything this God would do to make Nebuchadnezzar look better and be more successful and prominent and powerful. All the right things, had the right testimony, said the right things, and he said them to everyone. He gave testimony to everyone in the world about God, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And here's what he said. Listen about the signs and wonders of the Most High, what he's done for me. Listen to how great this God is. You know, it's interesting when God does something good in your life and you recognize that it's done of God, you are probably prone to tell others. You know, man, God stepped in and God rescued me. God stepped in and helped our finances. Our marriage was going south and God stepped in and healed our marriage. And, and you're willing to give God credit but when things don't go quite so well, you're willing to give him blame, but not credit. In other words, when maybe your finances don't go so great or you lose your job and you're not willing to say, God, I don't understand it, don't necessarily like it, but I know you're good, I know you're gracious, and I know you're in control, so I'm gonna trust you in this. And you tell others, I'm trusting God in this. I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, my son graduates from Harvard, he's got a, a economics degree, he gets an offer from PricewaterhouseCooper, supposed to start in August, and then two weeks before graduation, they say, eh, it's gonna be January. Now they're saying it could be longer. Why? Because they're not doing real well, and they don't wanna give him that job now. And so he's now graduated with a degree from Harvard, and he doesn't have a job. And he's not walking with the Lord right now, and he's struggling with, why is God doing this to me? What do I know? God is doing this to you so that you will trust God that he can provide for you. He's calling you back to himself. See, he didn't want to give God credit for doing something good. He wants to blame God for doing something he deems as bad. And that's exactly what happens with this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the dream. The dream comes in the midst of him living literally the dream life. Everything's going great. Kingdom, greatest in the world, wealth, power, 
He's just defeated the Egyptians who were one of the most powerful nations at that time. He's living in peace and prosperity. He's got everything he wants. He's got the 90-foot statue. Everybody's bowing down. It is great. It's wonderful. And then he has a stinking dream. And he's feeling really cocky and self-assured till the dream. And especially the second part of the dream when the ax comes in and chops down that tree. Even after the dream, here's what happens. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. He's had the dream, the nightmare. He's had it described and explained by Daniel. And what's he still got? A pride problem. It says, he's at ease in my house, I'm prospering in my palace, and he is cocky and he's overconfident and self-assured. Even though he's had this dream, even though he's been warned by God that something's going to happen. And as for me, I said, in my prosperity, that's important to notice, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Man, that, that is the worst admission that any man or woman, believer or unbeliever, could ever make. I will never be moved. I'll never be shaken. I got it made. I'm set for life. No, you're not. Anything could happen. Why? Because ultimately God's in control. But he says, no, I'll never be moved. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, the Proverbs tell us, or the Psalms tell us. This guy was prideful. This guy was arrogant. This guy was self-made, self-assured. And he's basically saying, there is no God even though this God of Daniel has told him the dream and its meaning, he's basically saying, screw that God. Excuse my French. I don't believe it. His ways prosper at all times. I will always be successful. This guy says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Man, don't ever get to that place where you think you've got it made and you've got it set and God would never do anything to harm your little kingdom you've established here on earth. Psalm 48 says, they name their lands after themselves, but despite their wealth, people do not last. They are like animals that perish. That is the destiny of fools. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of a godly or a, a biblical fool. He's living as if God doesn't exist, even though God has spoken to him multiple times. And that's when the nightmare becomes a reality. He's frightened by the dream, but he's not changing enough to change his behavior. And sometimes God has to step into our behavior and do something extreme. And that's exactly what happens to him. But he ignores the message. He won't listen to what God says. Daniel has told him the meaning. He's warned him about what's to come. And yet he's cocky, overconfident, but he wants to kind of know what should I expect? What's coming? And the answer he gets is not what he wants and it's not what he expects. Here's what Daniel tells him. It's you, O king. You're the problem. You got an issue. You've grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens. Your dominion reaches to the end of the earth. Daniel's saying, this is your problem. You're blessed. I mean, Look at that. It's basically, you have been blessed by God and that's your problem because rather than worship God, you're worshiping the blessings. You've got it all out of whack. It's you, O king. And he says, and you got to understand, king, this is a decree from God. It is binding. 
What I'm telling you is going to happen. Just like the dream of the statue is going to happen, this is going to happen. And you cannot avoid it. You cannot escape it. You can't use your army to stop it. It's going to happen because it's a degree of God and it's not going to be good. Here's what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, and you're probably aware of the story. God drives him literally crazy. He loses his mind, and he's driven away from mankind. He literally begins to behave like an animal, and he becomes like a beast, and he is driven out of the palace into the wilderness where he spends seven periods of time living like a wild animal, eating, eating grass like an ox, acting like an animal. This guy who was at the epitome, the high peak of everything, power, position, prominence, loses it all for a period of seven years. Imagine that. Everything, most powerful nation in the world, revered, 90-foot statue, and now for seven years he's going to live like an ox, like a wild animal, and he loses all of this. His kingdom, his robes his wheels, his chariots. He doesn't get to hang around in his chariots anymore, driving around in pomp and circumstance. He loses everything for seven years. You think God got his attention? You think that maybe got him to understand that God is greater than him? But see, he's warned that it's all gonna be up to you. This is what God's gonna do to you. And you gotta understand when it happens to you that the most high is the one who rules, not you. You're not the greatest king in the world. You're not the most powerful man. Heaven rules, not you. That's, that's what he's got to learn. He's got seven years to learn it. And then he says, you're going to have to break off your sins by practicing righteousness. You have got to change your behavior. You got to break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to stay like a beast until you repent. Until you admit your sins before God. And it happens. Everything Daniel says happens. And God has a unique way of getting our attentions when we avoid and ignore his promptings. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. It's going to happen. It's unavoidable. It's binding. And this guy still has eye problems. You know, he's still can only see himself. He's still all about Nebuchadnezzar, basking in his glory. He's forgotten about Daniel's warnings. He's forgotten about God's decrees, and he has no fear of God. God's told him what's going to happen. You're going to live like a beast for seven years if you don't repent, and yet he does not fear God. He is a servant of God. He's being used by God, but he's not a man of God. So he's standing on his palace and he says, is not this great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Look at what I've done. Look how great I am. And that precedes the fall. And it's a great fall. Proverbs says, pride goes for destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, 11, and 12, a rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his imagination before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. This guy who has it all is going to lose it all. Why? Because he refused to honor God. He's heard from God. He's had dreams from God. He's been blessed by God. He's actually praised God. And yet 
he has no fear of God. He's not a man of God. He's just a tool in the hands of God. But repentance brings restoration. At the end of seven years, we don't know what did it, but he finally repents. I think God had to make it happen. I think God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, opened his eyes to finally recognize and see, I've got to repent. It says he looks to heaven, his reason returns, and he learns the following lessons. Listen to these carefully. The Most High God lives forever, not me. These are his words. This is what he says when he gets his senses back. He says, his dominion is everlasting, not mine. Now, the not mine, I've added. But that's the real lesson in what he says. He says, his kingdom is from generation to generation, not mine. See, he's learning that God is sovereign, not him. He goes on and says, all nations are nothing before him, including mine. His will always wins out, not mine. See, he's getting eye surgery. he's, He's having God correct his myopic problem of always being consumed with self. He learns that God's power is irresistible, not mine. His sovereignty is universal, not mine. His works are true, not mine. His ways are just, not mine. He is able to humble those who walk in pride, including me. Seven years, literally, not walking in humility, crawling like a beast in humility. But God opens his eyes and he learns these valuable lessons. So here's your questions. Out of that list, go back and look at it. Which ones do you feel God is trying to teach you? Just pick one. Which which one is God trying to teach you? Because those lessons still apply, and they even apply to us as believers. Secondly, how does Nebuchadnezzar's life display a lack of fear of God, an ignorance of his love, and no desire for intimacy with him? Why is it so important for us to grasp those three things? And we've looked at them every week since we started this series. Finally, why is the idea of the self-made man so dangerous, especially for believers? Read John 16, 5 for insight from Jesus himself. We are not self-made men. We are God-created. We are God-blessed. We've been redeemed. We have his spirit. And we should at no point ever think that we've done anything. Everything we do, we do with the help of God. Well, Father, thank you for the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you for this picture of a man who was used by you, even praised you, uh, was an instrument in your hand to accomplish your divine will, and yet he was not a man of God. He didn't live for you. He lived for himself, and he saw you as just a resource that he could benefit from. And when you stopped benefiting him, he turned his back on you. Father, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to praise you for your blessings and then shake my fist in your face every time I think things are not going the way I want them to go. Father, I want to worship you consistently and constantly regardless of what is happening to me, around me, or even in me. So help me to learn from the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Help us to learn the lessons that he learned so that we might say the same things about you and truly be men of God. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.